Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I look back now, I don't real I don't know where I got the balls to say, Oh, I wanna leave college and I wanna pursue this and I'm gonna transfer to another school. I mean it's stupefying to me, but I think it's about the balls of being young. You don't really think a lot, which is great. And you should take advantage of that because the older you get, the more your life becomes in pen rather than in pencil and you can't really adjust things as easily as you can when you're young so take advantage of your youth welcome back to another episode of industry standard with me barry katz this is a really exciting show for me. Very, very exciting because sometimes you do these interviews and you're sitting across from people that you've been in meetings with or you've known through certain sales of television shows or films. And very rarely do I get to sit down across from somebody who was an inspiration to me when I first started and treated me like I belonged even before I belonged. And that's uh, Carol Leifer, who in my mind is one of the greatest comedians of my, I'm getting emotional, of my generation and of anybody's generation. And also one of the greatest writers and showrunners and creators and producers that I've ever uh, been around. And if you noticed, I said that and I, I didn't put the moniker on one of the greatest female comedians or one of the greatest female writers because when I'm around Carol Leifer, when I've always been around Carol Leifer, I don't lump her into any category I never have. It's just I lump her into the category of extraordinary and greatness. And so as I always like to do is tell sort of a six degrees of separation story in my life. God, I am getting emotional about this. I was a stand-up comedian. I was doing stand-up comedy in Boston, and I was running a few comedy rooms. And I used to do something very risky on Saturday nights at my comedy club called Play It Again Sam's. I would hire a comedian named Lenny Clark, who you may know as he was a cast member on Lara Cat and later on on Rescue Me, series regular. 
And Lenny Clark was like, he was like the mayor of Boston. He ran for the mayor of Boston. He was incredible. He, he, it wasn't that his material was anything you'd compare to like Jerry Seinfeld's or Chris Rock or Carol Leifer's, but he was one of those comedians that we've all run into in our time, if you follow comedy, that had that personality where he could just talk about a doorknob for an hour and, and make you laugh. But you could never point to any one joke that, you know, I remember he used to start off his set and he did this on the show that I'm about to talk about. This is an example of one of Lenny Clark's kind of routines. He'd say, you know, when I'm feeling down and out and shitty about myself, what I do is I get a bottle of Jack Daniels. Uh, I go to the cemetery. I get drunk. I walk around. I say to myself, hey. At least I'm a lot better than these fucking people. <laughs> that was the kind of material that Lenny Clark would do. But Lenny Clark and his brother, for some reason, took me under their wing. I don't know why. And they said, hey, listen, Barry, if you want to travel to New York, and again, this was somewhere in the late 80s, uh, Lenny is going to open up the HBO Young Comedian special with Rodney Dangerfield. And back then... For those of you who are, aren't as old as I am, the HBO Young Comedian Special with Rodney happened every other year. And if you were lucky enough to do yours with Rodney, you talk about a rating spike. The people who were on the shows that weren't with Rodney, I'm not saying a lot of them didn't make it. They did make it. You know, Judd Apatow was never on a Young Comedian Special with Rodney Dangerfield, but he did fine. But it was just something magical. It was in this club. Rodney would be walking around with a, you know, some kind of a bathrobe. Uh, Lord knows if he had any underwear on. And he was just like, it, it was craziness. And, the, and if you've ever been to Dangerfields in New York, the darkest comedy room in history. It was like a, it was like a cave. And the waiters were, looked like they were from the Sands Hotel in Vegas from 1950. They would be wearing the red, like, tuxedo tops and everything, the black pants. And it was a very formal thing. And Rodney, because of his commercial endorsement and ties, if you were a drinker, you only had two choices, Miller and Miller Lite for beer. That was it. And so I traveled down. They got me tickets to the Young Comedian Special. I didn't know who was on. I didn't know what to expect. All I knew was that I loved comedy and I wanted to be a part of comedy. I wanted to feel what it was like to be a part of the big show. And for some amazing reason, I was seated in the front row on the stage left of Dangerfields for this special. And it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. It was the first taping I was ever at. It was really the first time I'd ever been out of town to New York to see comedy. And it was one of the first times I got a chance to see people who Rodney anointed to be the next stars of the business. And that was an historic night because I got a chance to see two people that later had a big influence on me in different ways. The first person that I remember that's going to stand in my mind before I talk about Carol is Andrew Dice Clay. Because I was in the lobby and I only remembered Andrew as Andrew Silverstein. I never remembered Andrew as Andrew Dice Clay because I've been doing comedy clubs in Boston and 
here he walks in and he's got this you know leather jacket he's he's there's spikes he's smoking inside which you could do back then and he's bigger than life and i remember a big floral arrangement got delivered and it was handed to him by this maitre d' Bobby who had been there for like 30 years. And Dice opens the the card, and I'm just I just walked up and he opens the card and it says something to the effect of, Hey Dice, uh good luck to you. I have a great show from all your friends at the comedy store. Love Mitzi Shore. And I thought, my God, what a thoughtful thing. This is the first thing I'm seeing in comedy in New York. Wow, L.A. and New York, they get together, they work well together. Dice looks at the card after he reads it. He rips the card up, throws it on the ground, says, fuck Mitzi Shore, and hands the flowers back to Bobby. So that's my first thing coming in. I'm thinking, oh, man, this isn't uh, what comedy is cracked up to be. And I'd never met Carol before, and the show was going along well, and people were doing well, but I noticed that the kind of comedy that they were doing, like Barry Sobel and Lenny Clark, were more like a, it was more entertainment. It wasn't so much as cerebral comedy. Like Barry Sobel used to have an entire routine about punchlines to jokes. So you'd hear him for like 15 minutes going, King Kong balls, I thought you said ping pong ball. You know, just all these things. And then Carol went on stage. And it was an incredible, incredible performance. Uh, one that, you know, because it was a boys club there. It was just, it was just a testosterone filled evening. And Carol went on and she just took the room. And the comedy was like, it was a different lane. It was a different gear. And normally when you're doing the gear of cerebral, brilliant stand-up comedy, well-constructed, thought-out jokes and punchlines, it's very hard to follow people who are doing 10 minutes of punchlines to jokes. Very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't difficult for Carol Liefer. And I remember her going on and I just, I, I was just stunned at how powerful the jokes were and how there was a wink wink to every kind of situation of, of your place in the world and where you were going to go. And I remember after the show, I only searched out one person to talk to. And that was Carol Liefer. And, um... I remember I sat down with her after the first show had cleared and she was sitting with me. She took the time. Can to... I jump in? Yes. And then you brought me flowers with a card and I ripped up the card. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, fuck Barry Cats. <laughs> I couldn't help it, Barry. <laughs> Thank you. That's funny. It's great. You're always thinking. And so what I wanted to say here was is that she took the time with me she made me feel like a million bucks and she let me know that it, even though comedy and comedians in this world wasn't a safe place to work, that she gave me her time. She took the time while all the other comedians were in the dressing room doing whatever they were doing. 
she stayed out and she talked to me and inspired me. Do you remember what you said to me? I mean, besides a nice show or something like that, did you have a comment or a question? Because um, yes, I did. I I I don't remember this conversation. Well, how, could you, how could you remember? Because I was wearing a suit with colors not found in nature. But basically, what I was uh, asking you was about the transition from working hard to getting this break. And then on my side of the business, how I was going to be in a situation to take what I was doing in Boston uh-huh. to the next level right. to where I could be in New York doing the kind of things you were doing. Well, and, I don't know what, how I answered because I have no answer for that. Well, Still you, to this day in 2014. Because in your book, How yes. to Succeed what, in Business Without it, Really Crying, that's right. Lessons from a Life in Comedy, you'll find these things. So I just want to button this by saying yes. that this... In comedy, in any part of your life or in any kind of business, the key is is that to rally around and hang with people who treat you right, who treat you with respect, and give you the time to inspire you. And hopefully, as you go on in life, that you'll be in a situation where you pay it forward and do the same for those people as well. Yes. And... What I found throughout my entire career is those are the people I rally around. Those are the people that I want to be around. And if you're out there listening, if you can find the great people who you can rally around, who can inspire you and get you to the next level and get your mind ready to go to the next level, please do everything in your power to hang around those people and not the assholes. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. One of the things I want to talk about is one of your first huge breaks. Back when Carol and Jerry and, and Larry and Elaine were doing comedy, I'm sure you've all heard, there was really only one place where you could go that really garner respect. Yes, you could do a set on the Merv Griffin show or the Mike Douglas show at four o'clock in the afternoon. And if you were George Wallace, you know, that worked very well right. during those times. You yeah. could always kill with that, that audience or whatever. But if you were a comedian, you wanted to do The Tonight Show mm-hmm. with Johnny Carson. Yes. And unfortunately, uh, the law of supply and demand, there were a lot of comedians and there weren't a lot of spots. You know, maybe The Tonight Show put on 10 comedians a year, maybe 12, maybe 15, and... There were repeats and things of people who kept doing it again. And so Peter LaSalle and Jim McCauley, I believe, were very, very... These days, you know, a booker watches your YouTube video and a lot of times they'll go out to see you once and you'll get the gig. Not back then. Right. And your story about getting The Tonight Show, I think, is very inspirational. I I hope... I don't want to spoil it. I would love you to talk (laughs) about it. Yeah. No, The Tonight Show was the icing on the cake for any comedian. And I started a little after, like Freddie Prince, you could do the Tonight Show in those days, 
like Freddie Prince, go on, and the next day you have your own series, and it's a hit series, and it was that magical kind of time because there were three channels that everybody was watching, so everybody wanted to get on The Tonight Show, and I couldn't crack it. I don't know what it was. Uh, You know, the booker at the time... This guy named Jim McCauley was dating a woman comedian. A lot of people thought that maybe that was one of the reasons why he wasn't so hot on. Uh, did she ever do The Tonight Show? Well, of course. She did it a million times. Maureen Murphy. Oh, Maureen Murphy. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But. So that does work. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The age old. Uh, yeah. That still works. It worked then and still now, gals. Um, but anyway. Uh, I just couldn't figure out what it was because someone like Paula Poundstone did the Letterman show and the Tonight Show. But every time they would have me to audition, I would show up and do it. I mean, I would just bring my new five minutes and do it. And it got to the point where, I mean, eight times I auditioned, I couldn't get on the show. Ten times, 16 times. Twenty it took me 22 auditions to get on The Tonight Show. Persistence, everybody. And back then, Jim McCauley, he didn't say, hey, listen, you know that five minutes there? What I'd like to do is I'd like you to do 90 seconds, keep that, and then get rid of this. If I'm not mistaken, he never communicated. It was like you didn't, never even knew what right. you did. Yeah. So you no. had to do a new five minutes every right. time. It was like a stealth bomber came in the back of the room and left without anybody seeing. Um, Tell me about the finally getting the call. Tell me about that call. Um, you know what was so cool about it is I, I remember after... It was not only auditioning, but Jay was guest hosting and he had me on for New Year's Eve doing a sketch, a takeoff of Love Connection. So I was also kind of in the environment. And then I got a call uh, because I did it in February. Johnny retired in May. I did it in February before he retired. They said, why don't you come on the show? And I was like, I literally put the phone down and it was one of those, you know, where you're just sitting there for five minutes, stupefied, like, like it finally happened. And, and it went great. I went on. Johnny brought me over to the couch. And for those of you who don't know this, and this is something I can't believe I didn't mention it. Carol Liefer, do you know how many people have gone to the couch on their first Tonight Show? Uh, how many? Less than 10. Oh, really? Wow. I didn't know that. And from my life in Boston, the sixth person that did it was Stephen Wright. Oh, look at that. Oh, my God. Skip Stevenson uh-huh. did it. Freddie Prinze did it. Wow. So, and you did it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was amazing. And I have that picture in my office now of me on panel with Johnny. And, you know, it's such a key story in my book because that's to me now, I look back at that and it's like, I look at it and it still makes me so happy on so many levels. But the big lesson of it is I didn't give up. I just... You want to see me for the 22nd time? Okay, fuckers, here I am again. And with no resentment or anything like that, just doing it again. And that was the time they said, okay, so if anybody offers you the opportunity, take it and don't take it personally and just show up and do your thing. Show up, show up and don't have an attitude and just keep doing great work and you'll always win. Absolutely. You played the long game. And in my opinion, that's what I, that's how I perceive the quote in the book. When Johnny brought a comedian on, there were a very, very direct set of hand gestures and signals that Mm -hmm. meant things. And almost every comedian that went on, I'd say 90% of the comedians that went on, 
he would give the okay sign with his hand over to them. Right. And that meant you were coming back. Mm-hmm. Okay. To the other 10 to 20% or whatever it was, I, I'm, my percentage is wrong, maybe 80% the other. He would just say, nice job. And that wasn't guaranteeing you anything at uh-huh, all. And uh-huh. chances are you weren't going back on. Yeah. And to 1% of 1% of 1%, they were waved over. Yeah. The couch, and that was you. And I just want to acknowledge that again because that is like one of the greatest accomplishments that ever any comedian could ever ever have. Well, I'm so glad that I waited that long, and then when I finally did it, it that it went well. I mean, how much would that have sucked if after 22 auditions, then I go on and I stink up the joint, you know? <laughs> well, you and you probably wouldn't have been as good had you gotten it five auditions. Yeah, in. yeah, probably. I mean, whatever, but. You know, man, I really always use that example as something, you know, to show by example to hang in there and don't think, take things personally and take opportunities when they present themselves because you never know when it's going to turn around. And so take us through the first time that you said to yourself, you know what, I, I'm doing this comedy thing, you know, I can make some money, but I've heard that. You know, if you're a writer or a producer, things can go really well. I heard that the, uh, you know, I remember early on hearing the minimum wage for a writer. Yeah. Way back 20 years ago for a week was like, you know, $3,300 a week. And now, God, it's, you know, between four and five on certain shows or whatever. The minute, the I don't know the about bare, that figure minimum. because uh, when I worked at SNL, which was in 1985, I thought I was making a fortune, which was $1,500 a week. So... Well, that was late night, probably. That's the thing. So. Yeah, maybe. So, you, so your first gig where you decided, "Hey, I can write." Where is that? Um. Well, it kind of happened. Uh, again, out of the blue, because I auditioned for Saturday Night Live to be one of the cast members. Um, Do you remember who auditioned with you? Um. You know, it was at the comic strip. So I remember Larry Miller auditioned. Um, I don't remember anybody else that night specifically, but, um, and I got, I knew that Al Franken, Al Franken was there and, um, Franken and Davis were writing team and performing team. And Jim Downey, who was the head writer. And I knew they liked me. Still there. I watched the season premiere last night and, um, I mean, two nights ago and additional material by Jim Downey can't get funnier than him. Um, and they said, we really liked you, but uh, we want to hire you as a writer. And I was like, I'll, I'll take it. So, um, that really started. And who my was writing. on the cast at that time? It was the year of the weird cast because it's the first year Lauren Michaels came back to the show after Dick Ebersol. So it was, was that Anthony Michael Hall, Anthony Michael Hall, Robert Downey Jr. Who I know is a kid on the show, 19, probably, um, Joan Cusack, Nora Dunn, Dennis Miller, John Lovitz, uh, Randy Quaid, Terry Sweeney. Terry Sweeney yeah. and Nancy Reagan. Right. And it was the year, uh, I shouldn't say this proudly, <laughs> after I wrote on the show for a year, that the show was almost not renewed that year. It was really uh, critically panned and... Um, just didn't really wasn't connecting with people, but a great experience nonetheless. Yeah, I remember you said in your 
book, I believe, about how, uh, and I think this is important for our audience, how when you're working in a place, it's important to not only connect with the people and be great and be an easy hang with the people around you who work on the staff, but it's important to be an easy hang with the person who's at the top of the food chain, which is Lauren Michaels. Yes, yes. Yeah, Lauren Michaels. There's another important story, I think, in the book, because uh, I just felt like I never connected with Lauren. I just felt like he really didn't love me. And so as a result, I kind of disconnected from him. You know, I kind of flew under his radar. Uh, I would have handled my SNL experience so different were it today, because in a situation like that, where I see the top of the food chain person isn't really connecting with me, I would do whatever I need to do to try to connect with them, not flee them. <laughs> so um, at the end of the season, um, I, I should have been surprised, but um, I wasn't. I, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I was actually surprised by it because I thought, well, I'm really scoring with the producers, you know, Al Franken and Jim Downey, but... And you were surprised because you weren't renewed. Right, right. I was uh, not brought back to the show. And the big lesson is uh, you can please every number two and number three you want wherever you work. But if you're not pleasing the boss man, number one, um, you're not taking care of business. Have you spoken to him since then? You know what is so funny? Um, as these things happen, you should just, you know predict it uh my book came out in the spring and i went to new york and i did howard stern and the view and watch what happens live and all the big great press i come back to la i go to dinner with my friends at a restaurant called e baldy on cannon and we're celebrating my big book toast clink and to my right is Lauren Michaels sitting at the next table eating. <laughs> but, you know, I, of course, another big tenant of my book, you know, uh, in going over and saying hello to people, I went over to Lauren. I said, hi, how are you? He was very gracious. I said, I have a book out. You know, I tell a story about you, how I really fucked it up at SNL. And he said, oh, you didn't fuck it up. And, you know, I was under a lot of pressure back then. You know, he was so gracious and nice and saying, I think you've done pretty well. You don't really have too much to, shouldn't have anything to feel badly about and whatever. And uh, I said, I'll let you go back to your dinner. And I went back to my table. So it is so funny that, uh, you know, wouldn't that make sense? My celebrate celebratory dinner you know for my book launch <laughs> at the next table right there but you see what i'm talking about i could have been like guys it's lauren over there uh, we better get out of here and go to a different <laughs> restaurant it's like you know he's he's uh, a pro and i have no fear about going over and saying hi i mean the, the reason i tell the story in the book is you know i'm the one who messed up you know uh he didn't he was the boss and he knows what he's doing and i was just uh kind of um a dumb employee in that I uh, avoided him instead of making him my friend. So you've worked with these geniuses, so many geniuses, and uh, Lorne Michaels, I consider to be a genius. He is a, he, he is a genius, and I will go on record in saying I've never met someone who has such an acute sense of talent. I mean, he is like, you know... Uh, the people he's discovered, it is 
unbelievable. I mean, I've never seen someone who is so much of a um, comedy tastemaker, you know, and his sensor of comedy talent is awesome. Absolutely. Speaking of comedy talent, we're going to do a little six degrees of separation here. I'm going to mention a name. First thing that comes to your mind, anything short, long, sweet, whatever it is. Okay. Chris Rock. Chris Rock. Uh, I go way back with Chris. Uh, a very good example of somebody who uh, takes the craft seriously. I don't think people would think that right out of the box, but someone who works incredibly hard to be effortlessly funny. Steve Martin. Steve Martin. Um, you know, I wrote for Steve uh, for the Oscars when he hosted with Alec Baldwin and I was lucky enough to be nominated with the gang, uh, for an Emmy for writing, um, that year. But I have to say, you know, he was such an influence on me to get into comedy. I mean, if there was like Elaine Boozer at the time, there was also Steve Martin. And I remember driving up to his house to write jokes with the rest of the staff that year. And it was one of those things, again, where I had to kind of pull over on my way and just give myself a moment of, do you realize, like, if if I could ever have told my 19-year-old self, you're going up to Steve Martin's house now to write jokes with him and other people, like, how freaky that would be? It was a, like a pinch myself moment. And he's actually stayed... Um, as a casual friend, I can't call him a close friend, but he is someone who I reach out to occasionally and uh, we text each other and it still blows my mind to even casually have a friendship with Steve Martin. He's so, his brilliance, you know, I went to see him do his thing with his Steep Canyon Rangers at the Hollywood Bowl, uh, so multi-talented and not only that, you know, I sent him a note after seeing him at the Hollywood Bowl because it was also like he, he does this musical thing that's amazing, but he's also on stage being incredibly funny. And I pointed that out to him in the email because it was like a lot of performers would be like, well, go fuck yourself. This is me doing my musical thing and I don't have to be funny for you because I don't have to. I'm just doing my thing. He's such a pro that he knows People want him to be funny wherever they see him. So he does his musical brilliance, but then on top of it, it's also like, and you know what? I'm also going to be funny for you, too. Really out of the park funny, too. Awesome. Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra. Well, another pinch me moment of my career that I got to open for him. Um, a gentleman, uh, a legend. There are very few legends, I think, in the end. A legend. G gracious credited me as his opening act before it would bring me back for a bow every night. Certainly didn't have to do that, but did and credited the songwriters of each of his shows before he sang them, which I feel as a writer is pretty incredible of someone like that to also tip of the hat to the composition. Gary Shandling. Gary Shandling. Uh, enormously talented uh, still a friend of mine. I love when I work for people and uh, we stay friends over the years. Um, really amazing drama sense. You know, when I worked at Larry Sanders, he would watch the rehearsals of every scene and 
just know instinctively what thing was off or what needed to be added to make it not only hysterical, but also dramatically good. He has a really sharp sense. And I wish we see him more now because he's a little too um, enjoying his life. And I think he should be out there more entertaining us because he is one of a kind. Absolutely. Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield. Well, where we first met, Barry, as you uh, educated me today, um, you know, another guy who is a legend and I was lucky to know him, lucky to be on his special because like you were describing, to be, to get on the Rodney Dangerfield specials was really being kind of touched by God. But, you know, when I think of Rodney now, I think of a story that I believe Jerry Seinfeld wrote in Entertainment Weekly about Rodney. And it's so brilliant to me because it really sums up so much of stand-up comedy and business. I think Jerry in the article mentioned a comic coming over to him at the bar Rodney in the robe and and this kid just kind of racking his brain about advice from Rodney. And I think Jerry said he, you know, Rodney kind of exhaled and said, you know what, kid, you'll figure it out. <laughs> and that's so Rodney. But I think it's also so much of somebody's journey, especially his stand up or whatever field you go into. It's like you can only take so much advice. You yourself, you'll figure it out. Absolutely. Jerry and Larry together working with them. Well, that is also, you know, uh, what we call lightning in a bottle. There are very few things that are lightning in a bottle, but Seinfeld certainly was in the casting of it. But in those two minds intersecting, and I unabashedly compare it to their partnership to Lennon and McCartney, you know, obviously... Uh, Larry being the more John Lennon <laughs> and Jerry having the sunny pop sensibility kind of that McCartney did. But together it was amazing. And how lucky I was and every other writer at Seinfeld that, you know, p writers are so precious about being rewritten. Oh, don't touch my stuff. You know, every draft that people see of Seinfeld, that final episode they was there through their typewriter and to be rewritten by them, uh, you know, how lucky were we all um, to be for them to take our stuff and turn it into the Seinfeld episode you see on the air, you know? Absolutely. Your biggest disappointment in show business. Biggest disappointment. Um, you know, I write about that. You can't be swayed by, the disappointments in your career. You have to kind of keep moving. But, you know, I did have a sitcom, All Right Already, that ran for one season. It was wonderful on the WB. On the WB. I love that. Thank you. And I really am, I do feel that is the biggest disappointment that it didn't go on. I mean, I have some sense of satisfaction that Garth Ann Seer, who was the at, the time, the, at the time, right, has come over to me at every party I see him at over the years and go, oh, I'm so stupid. Why did I cancel your show? I'm so sorry. You know, whatever. I mean, shit happens, you know, but I really do feel badly about that because I really do think we had something great there. Absolutely. Your yeah. proudest moment in show business. Um, It's tough because we talked about it. You know, it's probably either between 
the Tonight Show because I like that because of the the moment, you know, the tenacity wins out in the end. Um, or Frank Sinatra because how often can anybody say that they, you know, it's like working with Elvis, you know? <laughs> how many people have that? It, it's either one of those two. And last question, what advice do you have for the young comedian who's going to Queens College or wherever they're working this day job that uh, they don't want to be at and they just have that dream to do something they want to do like you did to, yeah. to get to the next level in their career and to build and to be and have the kind of career that you have as maybe a young comedian or a young, you know, uh -huh. person in the business? Well, I think when you have a dream, whether that's show business or any other dream, I think it's two things are really important. I think for the show business part, especially for comedy, being take advantage of being young, you know, because when I started as a 21 year old, you know, uh, I look back now, I don't real. I don't know where I got the balls to say, oh, I want to leave college and I want to pursue this and I'm going to transfer to another school. I mean, it's stupefying to me, but I think it's about the balls of being young. You don't really think a lot, which is great. And you should take advantage of that because the older you get, the more your life becomes in pen rather than in pencil. And you can't really adjust things as easily as you can when you're young. So take advantage of your youth. But I think the biggest thing that people should remember and whatever they want to pursue is every day you always have to be your own biggest fan. And that's the same thing. I mean, not in the way of being a big headed asshole and a conceited jerk. But if you're not your own biggest fan, who else is going to be? So the things that you want to fight for and are important to you, you have to do every day with conviction and with grace because uh, you're the head of your own team every day. You know, nobody else is you. It has to be you. And I think of so many things that never would have happened for me if I hadn't been my own biggest supporter, because there are so many things out there ready to knock you down every single day. And if you don't say strong and true and focused and convicted, um, nothing good will ever happen. You have to start with that base. Awesome. Carol Leifer, you are definitely a force of nature. Your book, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying, Lessons from a Life in Comedy, but you can find this book anywhere. Everywhere, anywhere sold. and everywhere. And it has been endorsed by <laughs> some of the greatest names in comedy, from Letterman to Riser to the late Rivers to Jimmy Kimmel. Judd Apatow. I guarantee your audience, if they pick it up, they will love it. And I, the beauty of my guarantee is there's really no recourse. If they don't like it, well. Well, they will like it. And because people like <laughs> No, but you, I guarantee you, with no legal repercussions, you will love it. How could you not? For what a book like this costs, it's invaluable. And uh, I know. Can you, you go on Amazon, it's 15 bucks. $9.99, Kindle. It's ridiculous. And, you know, that's the reason why we do these podcasts is so we want to inspire people all over the world. And you have inspired people. Yes. All over if the you're world. in the Netherlands right now, you're going to fucking love my book. There you go. So you're Spanish. If you're Spanish and you're watching Devious Maids, 
You are going to love this yes, book absolutely. It's because you can get it in Spanish in certain countries. You probably. can get it in Latvian. If you need it in Latvian, you're going to get my book Carol in Latvian. Carol will actually translate it. I'll read it, in it to you. In La- I'll learn Latvian and then read it to you at night. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world, many of which you'll hear on the next three weeks of podcasts. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. And I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever.
As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.